This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Mike Donio or Donio? Donio? Donio. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. <laughs> How is the information war treating you? Uh, it gets crazier every day, doesn't it? Thank you so much for having me. That was possibly the most bland answer to that question I've ever received. <laughs> okay fair enough <laughs> why am i talking to you mike uh well i'm i'm a scientist uh who was for 20 years kind of in the in the trenches of mainly in, in industry up until about october of last year when i was unceremoniously shown the door for not complying with my former company's mandate and here I am. I've decided to fight back and, and speak out and share share the truth about what's going on and hopefully help to uh, provide you know any more insight in terms of the craziness that's that's gone on with respect to the the lack of scientific rationale that we've had. So you're actually a scientist from the pharmaceutical industry. So you you do have some clout. Well, maybe I don't know. I mean, you know. Nobody wants anything to do with me anymore in that realm. But, you know, I, I did uh, serve in the, in those trenches for quite some time. What are you doing now? Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of I'm doing a lot of these interviews to try to share the truth, share my story and um, fight back any way that I can help people kind of realize that there that there is something on the other side if you choose to stand up and and fight back and um i'm, I'm working on a couple of different projects to uh to that end i've, I've started a community of, of scientists called scientists for health freedom when i lost my, my job i went out looking for like-minded scientists and people like that and says is there any kind of a community or anything like yeah. that couldn't find anything so i just it's like, well, might as well just start something up and see what happens. And we've grown quite a bit organically, and uh, we have a great group of a lot, lot of broad experience and great people, and it's been quite exciting. Um, and I'm working on other things too, you know, collaborations with other people. I've connected with a lot of incredible people over the last, mm. what's it, nine months or so now since. Well, what is your story? Um. Well, so I guess, you know, I, as a scientist, I, I went into it with what I would say was good intentions, uh, a healthy curiosity of the science and a, the naivety of thinking that I could help make a difference as a scientist, not obviously knowing the truth about what was going on in science and in industry, uh, as I would later learn. And, um, you know, I got a degree in biochemistry and molecular biology, and I, I was in academia for a couple of years. I did uh, HIV research, or what I thought was HIV. Um, and that's where I really started questioning things, because what I thought was virology and how that worked was not what I wound up actually doing. And there were 
a lot of things that um, that I just started questioning right off the bat. And I never really intended to go into industry, but um, you know, one thing led to another, and I wound up in pharma. Did that for a couple years, and then um, went into some other things, and then most recently wound up in biotech uh, at a small company doing oncology research, developing antibodies to, to treat cancer. And, you know, that kind of leads us up to last October. Um, and so, like I said, most of my career and as a scientist has been in industry, but it's kind of, you know, I've, I've studied virology, I've studied neuroscience, I've studied oncology, I've gotten to kind of see a lot of different things. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of the same threads, a lot of the same issues that plague all of these kind of different areas. What are those threads? Well, a, a lot of it has to do with, with what I believe is just how the system is kind of designed to kind of perpetuate itself. Um, and you get the type of scientists or kind of lack thereof that you have that really are solely focused on things like publishing and getting more funding. And so you cut corners. I mean, when you're in industry, you're focused on trying to drive up value in your drug or whatever your product. So it's all about how quickly can we get the necessary data to check the box to get into clinical trial or whatever and build the value. And, you know, you're, you're cutting a lot of corners. You're very, um, not very, there's not a lot of integrity in terms of what you're putting out in terms of published data because you are trying, you're under all these pressures and whether it's in academia or in industry. So a lot of times, you know, you're putting together papers where you're just cherry picking data to tell a story or you're kind of writing the paper before you even have the data and then you go back and you're designing experiments to try to fill in holes without, instead of just actually doing science. You know, there's a lot of. You say doing science. What is science? And I suppose by extension, what is the scientific method? Ah, yeah, that's that's the question, right? So science, I mean, I guess let's start at the the word science, right? It, it, the word science is derived from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. It literally means knowledge and it means and it means knowledge of the the world within and around us. And we, we study that through observation and experimentation. I mean, and it's really that simple. And um, it, it really should be a process of a lot of questioning, right? You should be able to question and observe things. And, and, and if you use the scientific method, that's kind of the, 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 process kind of gives you a formal process to execute science, if you will, where, where you formulate a hypothesis that you hopefully have derived from some amount of research. And then you want to test that and you design experiments to test that. And in theory, you would do so with the, with the appropriate rigor. You would understand all the things that you're assuming, all the variables that could confound your results. You would control for as much of that as you possibly could. Of course, none of that stuff ever happens. And then you do your experiment, you get your, your data, and you'd say, okay, did I confirm the hypothesis or not? If not, 
you go back and you tweak it. But what happens is many times people just get the result that they want and they say, okay, we're done. It should be an iterative process and it, there should be an incredibly high barrier to being able to say, okay, yes, we validated this hypothesis or we're, you know, we're happy with where we are. It should be something that almost doesn't have an end. It's constantly iterative. You're constantly readjusting things and how you're asking these questions. Um, I think industry and for-profit science has completely destroyed the ability to appropriately use apply the scientific method and you see a lot of scientists now that you know even if they've been taught it they just don't know how to apply it or they just don't apply it appropriately and um, that I think is what lends itself to a lot of the sloppy science that's being done yeah you sound pretty frustrated <laughs> oh maybe a little bit <laughs> when, when when did you start seeing beyond the curtain um, well, like I said, when I was doing HIV research, mm. I had certain, I'm a young scientist, um, coming out of my undergrad work and, you know, not knowing a great deal, but I had certain, uh, I guess, notions of what I thought might happen in virology. And so I go into this lab and I'm working with, um, you know, a top infectious disease doctor who studied at NIH under Fauci. And so, you know, I think, okay, you know, this is, this is pretty cool. Um, and I had this idea that, you know, when you're studying a virus, you know, you're taking a primary patient sample and you're pulling a virus out and then you're studying that in different ways to understand it and then to figure out how you can therapeutically target it and all these things. Well, I've come to find out that you're in most virology labs, you're not actually using that primary patient material. And when I ask why, it's because there's not enough virus there. So you have to create all these artificial in vitro conditions in cell cultures and things to supposedly study the virus, but you're making a tremendous amount of assumptions without ever actually asking the question of, do you have a virus there? I never isolated anything. I did a lot of cell culture experiments, a lot of these things that people have talked about um, with respect to isolation and culturing viruses and stuff. I've done all of those things. I never isolated a virus. We just assumed that there was something in there because we saw a certain effect. But I know for a fact that many times we didn't have the appropriate controls to really rule out other contributing factors that could cause that no. effect that we were observing. So that took me down a path of, okay, what's really going on here? And I, of course, I started with HIV and I stumbled upon people that were questioning the HIV AIDS hypothesis and, you know, kind of really went from there. And then as I got into industry and saw kind of how things were being done there, I just kept kind of being a pain in the neck and questioning things. And people don't really like that, but, uh, you know, I've always been kind of like, well, why the heck are you doing this if you're, if you can't question it if you if you you know you're not doing it the right way and you just don't care i mean mm. it comes down to people just start doing stuff just because well this is what i've been told or this is what we need to do or this is what the people with the money tell us to do or this is what you know and mm. so you just do it and it just keeps going david resnick refers to it as uh, the tyranny of dogma did you find that to be the case Oh yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, it it winds up being 
more belief, more just appeal to authority or, or tradition, you know, well, look at these people that worked on this. They can't possibly be wrong. Or all of these papers and all of this documented, you know, this data and stuff like that, that can't possibly be wrong. You know, of course it's true. I mean, the problem is when you're in grad school or even med school, you're, you're thrown, you have so much information thrown at you. When I was doing my, even my master's program, there's such an insane amount of information that's thrown at you. And a lot of these, so I did my master's when I was older and there were a lot of younger people that were coming right out of their undergrad and they wouldn't, they would just take what the professor, the instructor was saying as if it was fact, they would barely question anything. I mean, but you also were getting so much thrown at you that you really didn't have the time, the ability to question stuff. So it's kind of, you say it's almost like by design, the way that the, the, schooling indoctrination if you will is actually done were you meant to isolate viruses i mean was that part of your role um we didn't technically have the instrumentation where we could have done you know like what i think many would consider to be the ideal way to to purify out these particles but we did have the ability to do certain things. And again, the problem was it was it was always just kind of assumed because somebody else had done something previously that supposedly showed something, you know, so you just say, okay, well then we're just gonna accept that and then just move forward. But, you know, without the proper controls, without ever having asked that question and saying, do we have that virus? How do you know? Was there a crisis in reproducibility oh there's there's absolutely a crisis in reproducibility and you know some people have i know i've heard other people talk about this this is something that i it's just always kind of blown me away um sorry but because i've seen it well before you say that what, what do we what do you mean by that yeah so what that really has to do with is the lack of the ability to reproduce published claims published data because the whole thing is when you publish data you're putting it out there and it's kind of in the public domain and you want it to be challenged. You want someone else to try to replicate it. And if they can, then that would kind of validate in some way your data. But the idea is you're not just publishing data that's, you know, you would hope that, you, that a lot of the data that's out there, especially that people are using to design clinical trials and develop drugs and stuff, that it's not all bunk, that it, there's some validity to it, right? But the problem is most of it's actually not reproducible. So some companies, um, a lot of companies actually, I should say, when, when they're, you know, the big thing is always kind of backfilling your pipeline. You always want to have a, a robust pipeline. So, there, so you always have more drugs that are, that are there flowing through that you can kind of push through. You never want to wind up with a situation where, you, where, you're, where you're running on empty there. So these companies have just, specific efforts to try to find new new targets to backfill their pipelines and one of the things you do is you go and you look at published research to get ideas and you know you're not going to just start working on something without verifying that it's actually a real thing so you take you try to replicate that data and i've done this you know a number of times myself and what they were finding was they couldn't reproduce hardly anything that, was, that they were trying to reproduce so like Amgen, which is a big biotech company here in, in the States, and then I think another one was Bayer Healthcare, 
they actually just decided to formally test this and say, well, you know, if we took a set of papers, they called landmark studies, they, they kind of actually hedged their bets and pulled papers from like high impact journals like science and nature. And I think it was mostly in oncology. And they took these 53 papers and said, we're going to try to replicate these. And, you know, because they're in these prestigious journals, we bet that, you know, that they'll be able to be reproduced. Well, guess how many they reproduced? Zero. Yeah, it was not far off from that. It was only six. So almost 90% didn't reproduce at all. And these are, these are like oncology papers, high, you know, science, nature that are used. The implication is these are used to, to, you know, to develop drugs, to design clinical trials. You're going into people that are terminally ill with cancer. And yet these things can't even be reproduced. Well, why, that, why is reproducibility important though? Well, again, it, it kind of establishes the, the validity of the data. I mean, mm. you, if you are claiming that you've found some new phenomenon that you believe you can make an argument that it's relevant in the context of some new therapeutic strategy or something like that, then if, it, if it's truly real, you should be able to repeat it, not just one person in one random lab, but multiple people in the same lab and even independently and at outside labs. And of course, the problem is you have one person that maybe did something and did it a couple times and published it. And if nobody else can repeat that, then you have to argue, well, what happened that those times, you know, was that a real um a real phenomenon that they actually observed or, you know, could they have cherry picked data to try to bolster their claim? Things like that happen. I mean, you know, it, if you're going to, if you're going to invest money into something or you're going to use, use somebody's data for, for yeah. something like developing drugs, I mean, you it better be reproducible. It better be some way to measure validity of it. And that is, you know, tends to be the best way to say, can we reproduce this independently? Um, and it can. I mean, I, you know, again, I, I had come across this a number of times in different places where I couldn't reproduce data. Uh, and I talked to many other people. It's what it's not that it's not known in science and industry. Problem is, people either don't see why it necessarily means that the data is wrong, or that it doesn't mean that the system is flawed. But if more than 90% of the published data, the published claims, and again, these are things that are, you know, leading to clinical trials, let's say, for example. I mean, if that, if 90% are wrong, then I think we got a pretty big problem here. And <laughs> I don't wasn't, know it, can... wasn't it John Ioannidis who said that most peer-reviewed papers bunk? Yeah, exactly. That kind of spawned this whole argument. I think that his kind of landmark essay was came out in like 2004 and then some of these formal studies I think the Amgen one was around 2012 or something like that and um yeah I mean it turned out he was he was pretty spot on and you know he kind of really breaks down a lot of the things that can attribute to these issues with the data things like bias things like uh, an over-reliance on certain kinds of statistical analyses where you're making claims that you have um, a certain um, significant 
change when you apply some kind of test, but really it's just statistics. It has no meaning from a biological standpoint or functional standpoint. It's just a, it's just an arbitrary statistic, but people were using that to say, oh, look, this this is something new or this worked or this whatever, and that it, it really doesn't mean anything. And then there's things like, well, if you have a too small of a sample size, you see a lot of these COVID studies that come out that they're claiming these different things about it, and they have these really tiny sample sizes. Well, I mean, the data can be easily skewed if you have too small sample size, too small signal that you're observing and, and a lot of noise in that signal. It, and so what Ioannidis was saying is when you have these the kinds of factors, the probability that a given data set, a given claim is false is, is very high. You're not, Mike, you're not suggesting that I should not be trusting the science, right? I mean, oh, I mean ob obviously gee. we need to we need to trust the science. We need, oh yeah, I mean, totally. You know, worship the science, right? <laughs> no, no, I would say not. Don't trust. Don't trust the science at all. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm not saying don't because I'll also argue that you know you don't need to go to an expert. That this is something that is. Science can be very approachable and it can be very easily understood by a great many people. You don't need to, you know, turn over your thinking to some quote unquote expert. But, you know, I just also said that most papers, research papers are potentially false. Well, it doesn't mean it's not valuable to learn how to understand them because clearly people are going to make claims. They're going to try to make man, you know, do a lot of things under the guise of published data and you need to be able to discern what's real and what's not. Then how do drugs get to the market if what you're saying is so corrupted? Well, you know, normally you have a certain um, amount of preclinical testing. There's a whole drug discovery process where you, you know, maybe you start out with a massive library and you just kind of whittle it down to you ultimately select a lead candidate and then that kind of gets pushed into more um, safety testing and things like that. And then you go into a clinical trial once you have some level of confidence. But the problem is, so before you go into the clinical trial, you're trying to predict how something is going to work in a human being, right? But you're using these models, whether it's in a lab, what's called in vitro, you're doing you're using cells in a dish, right? What, what we see with, with all these virology things, or you're using other similar kinds of um, experimental systems, or in animal studies, you know, you're using these mice that are inbred and genetically modified and all this stuff. And then you're trying to say that you can pull anything meaningful out of that to translate how it's going to work into a human so that you can justify doing a clinical trial. But what it turns out is that these, these preclinical models really have no bearing on what is going on in a living, intact human being. And it's pretty well accepted, or it's becoming more well accepted, that this is the case and that these models really don't translate at all. They don't tell you anything. So then you have to ask, why, why are you even doing this? Because then you're really kind of going blindly into a clinical trial. But it's, it turns out it's all about the regulatory requirements to get into a clinical trial. So the FDA, you know, in the United States where I am, has certain requirements to get in to do a clinical trial. And 
a lot of it is providing certain types of data. You know, you have certain um, documentation that you have to provide and it has to contain certain things. So it becomes like checking the box, right? So that you're able to then gain approval to get into a clinical trial. And even then you design your clinical trial in certain ways to try to stack the deck in favor of finding the activity you're looking for or mitigating toxicities. You know, certain, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can, and, and I don't know, I don't have a tremendous amount of experience with clinical trials, but from what I have observed, there are ways that you can manipulate these things to try to stack the deck in favor of getting a result. So is evidence-based medicine an illusion? It certainly would seem that way, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, sure. It, the, especially when you have a situation where nobody really even cares about whether there's evidence of a given, say, particle that's causing, that's supposedly causing a disease, and then you yes. institute a bunch of mitigation strategies that are supposedly based on that, but you have no evidence. <laughs> that, that sounds pretty scary because what right. what are people being injected with half the time then? And what are they being injected against? I mean, if you read Dissolving Illusions, you realize that pretty much no vaccine in history has done what it was set out to do. Well, yeah. I mean, if there's no... If you're making the argument that, let's say there's there's no evidence that there's a virus that causes a given disease that you're trying to vaccinate against or any disease, you know, you apply that more broadly, then what exactly is the rationale for vaccination? I mean, um, and I think we've seen throughout history that many times when they've done these large vaccination efforts, that it's the vaccine that's driving the increase in the, the sickness. You know, we saw this with smallpox, although they claim that the vaccine is what eradicated it. But you know, you see when the vaccine goes away that then you see, or things are improving way before the vaccine was even brought into play. And, you know, but then they still try to make this argument that the, it was the vaccine that, you know. You've, you've studied virology. Uh, I'm getting the impression that you're suggesting that uh, viruses are either misunderstood or simply don't exist. Well, I'm I'm absolutely of the mind that it I think it it's a fair question to ask and but I think it's also important to kind of clarify the argument and what what exactly you're you're asking because I think it's something that can be easily misunderstood and I think that is in fact the case with a lot of people when they hear this come up or they hear somebody say well I don't think the vi the virus exists or whatever I don't I mean, from my perspective, you know, and this is based on review of the data, the evidence that's out there, but also my personal experience and observations. I haven't seen anything, evidence, that I believe suggests that there is, or, or I guess I would say that I don't believe there is sufficient evidence to say that these viruses have been isolated, identified as what we're saying they are. Now, does that mean that it's not possible that somebody could come along at some point and do a really good series of rigorous experiments and um, and actually provide some sort, you know, that evidence? Sure, and, and I keep a very open mind 
and I'm happy to entertain whatever new evidence comes out. And if if it's really clear that you know that that they 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 do exist or whatever, I'll, I'll change my my options. I'm just going by what what I've seen, the evidence I've seen, what I've observed in the lab. But when you know, they, I, sorry, Mike, but when they talk about viruses ha having been isolated, they will say, for example, SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated. Um, or mm. Judy, Judy Mikovits might say that HIV has been isolated. Uh, what is what do they mean when they say that? Well, yeah. So I mean, this is one thing that's like I'm, I'm sure you've come across this: the incredible importance on words and the, and the meanings. Um, and isolation is one of those because most people look at isolation and they think one thing: they think, well, this means you know you're going to separate something from everything else. So that you can so you can study it, you know, kind of purify it, if you will. But but virologists look at it from a completely different angle, because they have this idea, and it you know maybe it is right, but again, it's a huge assumption that that a virus is not able to replicate by itself. It's it's not alive. It has to have a cell. So therefore, if they're going to isolate it, they have to culture it on a cell first. To be able to have it replicate, but my question is, I thought there was supposed to be a ton of it coming from a sick person because that's the causative. If that's the causative agent, how can you not take a sample from a sick person and isolate a virus, right? I mean, so it's this, like, I can understand to some degree what their their kind of idea of what isolation is, but I think that's getting further down the line. I think you have to go back and find that independent variable first before you get to that other part. So they've kind of just gone and accepted that this huge assumption that the virus already exists and we know what it is and we know how it works. So we're just going to kind of take the liberty to not worry about that. We'll just move on down here. And based on this knowledge that we've, the stuff that we've accepted, will then design ways to uh, characterize what we believe mm. is a virus. But of course, you've never gone and actually confirmed that. That does raise a few questions. Sorry, hang on. <coughs> Sorry, my, my whiskey got went down the wrong pipe there. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just to play into what you're saying. So a year ago, I... I went on a boys' weekend, different part of the country, uh, out in the bush. The day I got back, I got sick. I just came back now from a boys' weekend, also out in the bush. The day I got back, I got sick. Identical uh, situations. Now it's either coincidence, or it is, <coughs> excuse me, or it is something that happened in terms of like let's say dramatic change of environment. Not necessarily the cause of a virus, surely. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're out in the, you know, somewhat middle of nowhere. So it's mm. not as if, although I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe something jumped out of a monkey or something and got you. Right. But, <laughs> 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 but who knows? <laughs> <coughs> but probably not. Let's say for sake of argument. <laughs> but what you're saying is, is quite profound because it's going against the entire zeitgeist. Right. I mean, it's, I think it's a hard 
pill, I guess, for, for a lot of people to swallow, if you will, because it's we ha there's a certain it, this paradigm has been repeated so much that many people have developed a certain comfort zone around this knowledge of when I get sick, this is what's happening. It's a virus or whatever. And I know I can go to my doctor and I can do these things to treat it or try to prevent it. If you're saying this is all wrong, that's a pretty big shock. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is I think this is a this is truth that this truth, this whole idea that viruses might not exist or might not have been proved to exist um, and, and other things associated with that, it kind of lives outside of the current window of understanding, like this, yes. you know, the Overton window, right? It, it kind of hangs out out there. So it's not even on a lot of people's radar. So when they, mm. when they hear that kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> but I think it's just because of how as a society we've been conditioned to accept yeah. the current paradigm and that we're seeing the result of that. Um, <clears throat> I apologize. I'm coughing and clearing my throat while this conversation is going on. But uh, the good news, Mike, is that our audience can't hear me doing that because every time I do that, I turn off my microphone. It's, <laughs> it's, it's only you that can hear me doing that, but I'm going to chop this little bit out. Uh, in the final upload <clears throat> um so i hope i don't put you off too much i'm trying to get through this conversation yep. without uh, <laughs> without too many distractions <laughs> um, mike something that we have been told over the last two and a half years is not to do our own research and to trust what we are being told you're you're suggesting the opposite oh yeah absolutely uh, I mean, I'm I'm a firm believer, you know, it's it's not that it's not that it doesn't take time or dedicated effort. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not saying like that anybody can just jump in, but it is more a lot more simple than people, especially those people that are in in control and making these policies and people in places like NIH or whatever CDC will make it seem like it is. I think, you know, it's intentionally set up to be a situation where you have to go to an expert, where this is above the level of the layman to even consider understanding this. But that's not the case at all. It, it is a lot more simple once we get past what I believe is the biggest barrier, which is terminology. I think a lot of people get hung up on these terms. There's this whole, like, scientific language almost that I know people have asked me, about things or, or when I say, you know, go look into it yourself. They're like, well, I just don't, you know, I get caught up on all these words and things. And, and then it's just so much easier just to ask somebody like you or whoever, you know, or go listen to somebody else. And, and, you know, so that's where I think people are really getting caught up and then they just kind of give up. You know, I was talking to somebody one time and they were like, well, I've sit there and I got like 15 tabs open on my browser. I'm looking up stuff. I mean, it's it's almost like a kind of an intentional barrier to keep people from or keep the information from being more accessible right because once you get past it i think it's a lot easier for to understand than i think people realize and i think it's that's the same way with a lot of things like like legal stuff right there's, there's a whole legal language out there that you know kind of keeps people from understanding certain stuff about laws and legal matters and so you go to experts there too it's the same kind of thing with science where there's this 
barrier of language of terminology mm. and whether that's intentional or not might be um but i, get... I think once, once you Sorry, get past God. that so i interrupted you I, I get the impression mike that um there's this deliberate attempt to create this huge canyon between the layman and the scientist but what a few hundred years ago that wasn't the case because as you said at the beginning of the conversation science means knowledge so to be a scientist i'm guessing means to gain knowledge yeah ab absolutely and of course you have to do this by uh by observation and by thought and you know one of the most dangerous things to those who seek to control us is a thinking person you know the last thing that anybody wants you to do is actually think for yourself and discover what is in your own best interest and make decisions based on that and not on what what somebody else tells you right so are you on the vanguard or are there many scientists like you but they're simply too scared to to, to speak to speak out yeah i've i've had people ask me you know, is, is, are, is everybody all in on it? Is everybody, you know, does, does, are you the only one? Are you, I mean, I've, so there are a lot of scientists, unfortunately, that do kind of believe in the science. Um, but that's not to say that it's everybody. I, I've talked to a lot of different people throughout the years that have, have questioned things, maybe not to the same level that I have, but certainly have pushed back on things that were that were being done and on you know i mean so it's not that definitely that i'm the only one and i i believe there's a lot of people out there that have probably seen things that they might not realize that are you know would be important to to help illuminating this situation but you know it, it just might not realize it or they're just kind of so stuck in their career or whatever you know they wouldn't want to do anything to to jeopardize that and that's the thing even if you do want to talk about it i mean there were people that I worked with that kind of questioned some of the things around uh, COVID and, you know, when push came to shove, you know, I was the, really the only one that, that stood up and said no. So there are definitely people out there, but it's just, it's, it's a clear, there's a clear obstacle in terms of getting people to, to stand up and speak out and especially, you know, scientists. Um, and a lot of that comes from, you know, giving up your, your career you are if you try to do that on the inside you know retribution is 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 very real you're you're gonna you're, you're gonna get in some trouble um you know and if you and you probably lose your job um and then what do you do right so and of course you're 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 questioning you know potentially your whole life's work and everything like that so i get it but there's definitely more people that i think would speak out that can speak out, but there's a lot of anxiety about it, you know, and it's one thing that I'm trying to, as part of this group that I set up, the Scientists for Health Freedom, to think of ways to encourage and support people that are, that are willing to speak out in, in different ways. I can't really find a good enough segue, so I'm just going to come out and say it, but I know that you have some views on, on cancer. Well, yeah. Um, and, and that was, of course, as, you know, I've, I've supported oncology programs at different times, but my, my most recent, um, chunk of, chunk of time, um, was, was in oncology. So 
I got to see a little bit more upfront um, how kind of the oncology world of drug discovery functions. Um, and, you know, I've had um, a lot of personal re relationships, instances of people with cancer that have kind of opened my eyes to how it's handled in the in the medical industry. And um, it's it's pretty abhorrent on both sides, um, both from the from the research standpoint. I mean, a lot of these drugs, the things that are used to treat it are even though, you know, when I what I was doing was supposedly kind of the newest cutting edge research, newest kind of drug uh, strategy. But the problem is, if you have cancer and you go to a regular oncologist, they're going to still fall back on the same old conventional treatment strategies, the chemotherapy, the radiation, surgery that have abysmal success rates. And in fact, in a number of cases, the chemotherapy and the radiation cause cancer themselves. Um, so it's, it's a pretty... It's a pretty bleak situation, and you know we we talk a lot about viruses, but but cancer is a huge elephant in the room too because there's a lot of people that are afflicted with cancer, and the cancer industry is a is just as big a behemoth as the virology or or kind of germ uh, theory one. You've you've kind of tiptoed around this minefield, um, and I'm. I was hoping for something a bit more juicy. What What is it that you are suggesting about the cancer industry? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's obviously in, in all of industry, right? There's a deliberate attempt, I would say, to keep people sick. I mean, you're profiting off of these drugs. We, the quote-unquote patient are the customer right and the last thing you want is your market to dry up and so what 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 is the market if of pharma of healthcare it's, it's sick people it's not healthy people so i mean and and that's the same thing with with cancer and so you know if you can keep people coming back return patients if you know a given therapy is maybe going to maybe it's going to be effective for a little bit of time and then it's going to fail and you're going to have to come back and try something else you're going to have a repetitive you got a pretty good repetitive business model and i know you know that's a hard thing to say for some people because if, if it's worked for you you will swear by it but chemotherapy the success rate is something like three percent it's it's horrific and it's insanely toxic most most um, anti-cancer drugs are insanely toxic. They're not. They're not really targeted drugs. They affect the whole. You know, they're systemic. They affect the whole body: healthy cells, cancer cells, everything. And um, you know, you accept. We've been sold this bill of goods that we have to accept these horrible toxicities and side effects because it's cancer, and you know, we have to kill the cancer with like a with military precision, right? We have to <laughs> take this crazy attack on it. And yet we don't even, it's all with this understanding of what we've been told cancer is, which I think we can question that too. I don't really what, believe the current. What is cancer? Well, right. So we're, you know, we're told that it's, 
basically, well, I guess originally we were told that it was a ball of these cells that grow um, kind of out of control, and it's caused by a series of mutations that eventually kind of fully release the brakes on these cells and cause them to grow uncontrolled. Well, as time went on, they found out that a tumor was more than just this ball of cells. In fact, something that really surprised me in my own research was, was that a, tumors are not just, not only are they not just made up of cancer cells, they're made up of a lot of different things, but in many cases, the cancer cells are not the majority, they're like the minority and sometimes very small minority of the cells that are in the tumor. So you say you're targeting cancer cells, but in reality, there's a lot more going on there. And when you really look at it, it, it doesn't necessarily just look like a process of something that's just gone away. It seems like it's, so there's a lot that parallels wound healing and healing processes in these tumors. And so you start to say, well, is this really something where it's, where maybe it actually has a purpose? Or is it just something, you know, that you're told that it's something to fear, that, you're to that it's something that's, you know, that you can't help, that it's, you know, you have to attack with military precision and get, get rid of it. And it's really bad. And it's just, it just happened and it's out of control. And... But what do you, what are you saying then? Is it, is, is, is A, the cause of cancer then still unknown and B, the treatment of cancer also unknown? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people that are asking questions about this. I'm certainly trying to, to learn more. And, and look, of course, you know, sorry, of course, you get various different cancers as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, but I've heard a lot of different really intriguing theories about what cancer is and how it's caused. Um, I just, I don't think, you know, I think modern science um, wants you to believe that this stuff is settled, that we know exactly what cancer is and this is what it is. But I think the, the reality is we don't have all the answers. Um, and, and it's highly likely that what we've been told by mainstream science is really not the truth, but it's what lends itself best to being able to develop drugs that can be marketed and profited off of by pharma companies and doctors. And so that's, that's what is used. You know, you need a system that allows you to say that you can therapeutically intervene so that you can justify developing drugs and using those drugs. And doctors make a lot of money prescribing chemotherapeutics. You know, wasn't, wasn't the early AIDS treatment uh, also chemotherapy? Yeah. So AZT, the, one of the first things that uh, Fauci, I believe it was that brought it up it was it was a chemotherapeutic agent that was deemed to be too toxic to use for cancer treatment so they shelved it and then, and then for whatever reason decided to repurpose it and we you know of course we've seen this a lot before um you know you look at even like remdesivir which is very similar to azt in terms of its mechanism of action and therefore nobody should be surprised that it's insanely toxic um and that was tested for, well, supposedly other viruses. So, of course, you could question that. It wasn't like it was um, tested to use in a completely different indication. But there's a lot of drugs, you know, 
if it doesn't work in one thing, how can we salvage it to work in something else? Because, you know, again, at the end of the day, is you, you're injecting a lot of money investing into developing these things, and you're going to be driven then to find any way you can to drive a profit off of it. Mm. So repurposing is done a lot. So basically what you're saying is that Freddie Mercury did, did not die of AIDS, but of AZT. I think there were a lot of people um, that died of AZT, which, of course, if you take AZT for, you know, what do they say? Um, HIV, <laughs> you get infected and then you have this this period of um, latency, they call it, where it kind of is dormant for, <laughs> yeah, for like 10 years or something, except for, you know, during that 10 years, if you're taking a AZT, your body's slowly wearing down and then event and then of course you're going to manifest gross symptoms of in the incredible toxicity and then oh look he's you know they you have aids <laughs> well yeah no kidding if you take something like that for a prolonged period of time it's going to destroy your body i mean there are other things too that nobody wanted to look at with respect to aids and once the viral theory came out and robert gallo and came out and and fauci and said Oh look, we found the virus that causes AIDS. Then you couldn't investigate any other theory of possible causative factors, right? And that's the case with other things too. Luke Montagna, I think, also started backpedaling. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned vaccines earlier, but uh, you didn't uh, you didn't throw in the the big one, mRNA. What do you know about that? Well, mRNA is kind of I mean, it's been studied as a potential therapeutic for for a while. Um, it just never kind of had its um, day in the sun, so to speak. And companies like Moderna, you know, they they raised an insane amount of money and built up a tremendous amount of excitement and potential. And initially, it was supposed to be kind of the next generation of gene therapy. Um, because the, the the previous attempts at gene therapy have mostly failed spectacularly. Um, and the idea is, you know, it's hijacking the body's uh, protein-making machinery. And so if you could just get the, um, the cell to, excuse me, make a version of a defective protein itself, then you could potentially solve the problem. Theory is kind of intriguing, but in principle, it's, it obviously doesn't work out that way because what you have to do is you have to modify the mRNA to, to stabilize it and have it persist long enough to attempt to make the protein, which causes all sorts of problems because mRNA is not supposed to be exist. It, it is um, degraded very quickly or it can elicit a lot of different responses. And, uh, and um, so you modify it, and that causes problems. And then you have people saying, well, does this mean it's going to get taken up into the genome, and then you're going to just keep making these things? I mean, there's a lot of things that are possible that are theoretical. I don't think there's sufficient evidence to say one way or the other what's, what is actually happening. But the crazy thing was this, this idea of using mRNA, so again, like I said, it was, it was attempted by companies like Moderna and for things like cancer, for other rare diseases, and it failed spectacularly. And they kind of had this massive, you know, there was all this money that they raised and all this stuff, and they had to do something with it. You know, it was kind of like, um, 
what happened with Theranos. I don't know if you've heard about that with Elizabeth Holmes, that, that thing where she created this company and raised all this money and uh, w with this idea, and it turned out to be just completely bunk. It didn't work at all, but yet, you know, go, they were going around selling people on this idea, and it was kind of like that. And it, it, so you raise all this money and you need some way to convert it into a, a profit. And so, oh, well, the pathway to approval for a vaccine is a lot easier than a, a, a therapeutic agent or a gene therapy, right? Because at the end of the day, it's all about how do you get these through the regulatory approval? And the FDA is not giving you a rubber stamp because something's safe. It's because you're trying to commercialize a drug, a product. It's all about, you know, it's all about commercialization. So how do you get to that point? And a vaccine is a lot easier to get through. And of course, it's a lot even easier if you have a big need for such a vaccine, like we've seen in the last two years, then you generate a big market. And then if you mandate it, well, <laughs> then you take it a step further. <laughs> so you're not going to be injecting yourself with mRNA anytime soon? Uh, no. Do you think and a I lot of people, yeah, do you think a lot of people are going to die in the coming years because of it? I've, I've heard a lot of things. I mean, I, I think it's, it's very possible. We don't, you know, it's a, it's an incredibly untested technology. We have no idea. And to put this in the scale of people that it's gone into with no long-term testing is scary and incredibly reckless quite frankly i mean uh, and i think what we're seeing so far is we're seeing a lot of acute effects that happen short term after you get the thing and then maybe some kind of things that are happening kind of a middle term different things that are happening and then but i think you're going to see more different things occur and maybe ramping up of things over time as as this stuff is there longer and can mess around with um stuff in people's bodies i mean we just don't know everything that that this thing is doing but it's clearly having a huge uh causing a lot of problems i mean you see the massive numbers that even in the public domain of people that are the the um the the deaths and then also the the side effects and you know we know that those numbers aren't entirely accurate but they're still staggering and if even if you try to factor what might be closer to the accurate number, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. What are your views on the snake venom claims or are they just all snake, snake oil? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I, I always welcome and I think we need to have people that are that are willing to bring forward new theories, new ideas. So, you know, I think it's absolutely good to bring forth a new theory, a new idea. But, you know, you need to if you're going to do that, then you are putting it out there for people to evaluate. And I took an approach as a scientist that I want to do a comprehensive evaluation of this and understand it is the theory actually backed up by the studies and the evidence that, that was provided, just like anything else. And so I did it, I did my own kind of investigation and I actually 
presented it on one of Dr. Tom Cowan's webinars. And, um, you know, I found that a lot of the key studies that were being presented as um, evidence of this were just not sufficient to back that up, I guess would be the best way to say it. And, and there were some claims too that were just, you could pretty easily refute them. You know, the idea that remdesivir is snake venom, I mean, is very easily refuted. It's absolutely not snake venom. There's no, I mean, but there are things that I think a lot of people don't realize. And stuff like snake venom and toxins like that have been used in research, in industry as tools, but also as, um, I guess, uh, ideas for potentially therapeutic agents. And it's been, this stuff has been tested for a long time. I've, I've worked with a lot of these kinds of things, but if you don't know that and you hear it, Oh, these companies are testing venoms and toxins and all this stuff. You know, you might be taken aback by that idea. I'm not saying it's a good thing or that, but I'm just saying it's something that's, this is not new and it's been done for a long time. And, and also, when you're thinking about like, is the water poisoned or something like that? I mean, there's a lot of evidence that there's massive contamination of water sources. I mean, even thinking about something like remdesivir, any of this stuff, we're talking about a very contaminated, toxic, you know, lifestyle and everything. Like there doesn't have to be snake venom for it to be really bad. Remdesivir is causing tremendous problems and it doesn't really, I mean, that drug itself, like I was saying, it's not too dissimilar from AZT, which was insanely toxic. I mean, these drugs are insanely toxic themselves, regardless of whether they're snake venom. The water has a lot of contaminants that can be incredibly problematic, regardless of whether there's snake venom in there. So, I mean, yeah, I think we should entertain any new theory that's out there. And I'm not looking to, I'm, I'm looking at the evidence at the studies and stuff that are provided i i you know I'm, I'm not going to comment on the people making the theories or that are going around because i don't know them and i you know that's kind of pointless mike in front of you there's a crystal ball what do you see hmm. um i don't know i mean i kind of I, I i see this getting worse i think before it gets better because i think there's there's people that are determined to execute certain certain or imp, execute implement certain things and they're going to try as hard as they possibly can to get there um and that's why i think you know we have to start arming ourselves with with our own knowledge and taking a stand against this and not just accepting what we're being told or else we're going to continue to be very easily misled Yeah, I think I think you might be right. Um, if you were to have swallowed the white pill, in other words, if you were to give some sort of uplifting, solution-based response to to people around us, because there are a lot of people around us who are very nihilistic, what would you say? Um, you know, I think I it's important to to open your mind and be receptive to other alternative explanations of things. And I know it's, it's easy to want to remain in your, your comfort zone 
and want to believe that if you just listen to what people are saying and telling you to do, that it's going to be okay. I mean, there were so many people that, that even I knew that just, it was so much easier just to listen to, you know, whatever your governor, whoever, you know, whatever person was locally was telling you what to do or had it, you know, and then, you know, next thing you know, you're locked down and you're being threatened with taking an experimental drug and all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> we went from trying to just get through this to now it's, you know, all of these crazy things being pushed on us. I mean, I think we really have to open our open our minds to accept different things outside of just what, what we're told. Mm. Where can people follow you? Um, I'm, I'm all over the place on social media and things like that. Mike Donio, I, I have a, um, I have a, I have a Substack blog. It's called still in the storm. Um, there's scientists for health freedom where the main group there is on telegram. Um, I have a, yeah. So, I mean, I can be found in a lot of different, a lot of different social media platforms and things like that kind of still getting my feet wet with all this stuff. I'm not, uh, I guess the best with tech and all that stuff, but trying to sort it all out. And... Um, <clears throat> when I told Sam Bailey that you were coming onto my podcast, she raved and she said, you are a great man. Oh, wow. Well, I really appreciate that. The, the work that she and, and her husband Mark are doing is just, is phenomenal. And I've seen her, you know, I know you've done, I don't know how many it is now, a, couple, a bunch of episodes with her, and they've all been great. Yeah, uh, yeah her and her husband I, are great. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I haven't had the opportunity yet to to actually connect, in you know, with them. Um, I, I hope to at some point. Um, I've certainly been, I've been connected with, I've been working with uh, Dr. Cowan and, and Dr. Kaufman, you know, quite a bit. I'm actually going to be doing some collaborations with uh, with Andy, um, but yeah, but the but the Baileys are are they're doing some awesome work and kudos to them for for standing up too. I mean, they were medical doctors and you know they could have gone along doing doing what they're doing, but they said no, this doesn't seem right, and and, and now they put themselves out there and uh, against a lot of scrutiny, but they're they're putting forth a lot of great information and asking a lot of good questions mm. mike donio thank you for joining me in the trenches yeah thank you this has been great really really appreciate it don't go anywhere my name is germ this is germ warfare if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com 